Welcome to the Truth Exchange podcast, a unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. This lens is based on Romans 1.25, where we've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation, rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. I'm your host, Joshua Gilo, and today I have two special guests with me, Dr. Peter Jones. Welcome, Dr. Jones. I'm glad to be with you. And Dr. Stephen Shavura, who is a new guest. Welcome, Stephen. Great to be here. Thanks, Josh. Stephen uh, holds a PhD in the history of early modern English political thought. He's published in a number of journals as well as author of several books. His research interests include the history of political thought, church and state in history, modern political philosophy, recognition theory, and freedom of, spe- of speech. Stephen also regularly contributes to public debates in various online and print form, as well as radio. Stephen also contributed to our recent symposium at the beginning of this year. Dr. Jones uh, was ill, and so Stephen jumped in to our rescue and delivered Dr. Jones's lecture. This was the mind of Christ taking every thought captive. Uh, we have over the next few weeks some special speakers lined up because we are going to be addressing some cultural, key cultural hot topics. And it's going to be preparation for our 2021 online symposium, which is the state of our disunion. Dr. Jones, could you share a little bit about what the state of our disunion is? Well, I don't think we've ever been more disunified, but it's over a whole series of issues that uh, seem to be lining up one after the other. We are disunified as to how we should obey the government in terms of what it's saying about the uh, lockdown and some churches are going against local rules and some churches will not do that but there is a an argument to be made and we perhaps could talk about that then we're very much disunified over how to vote Hmm. Uh, Stephen doesn't know about this because he's in Australia and they don't vote in Australia they they're still trying to become civilized people True, it's true. We're still ruled by governors. Still martial law here. Founded as they were with a boatload of criminals. (laughs) Still are, that's correct. Only because you you guys stopped taking them. Well, the point is they were English criminals, though, so that saved you. (laughs) That's right, and it condemns you. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Anyway... The, the big question, which is coming up in 27 days in terms of voting, is to how Christians should vote. Mm-hmm. Should Christians vote for the Democrats or the Republicans, for Biden or for Trump? And there are a number of Christians who don't feel that they can vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. So there is a big division among Christians in our time. And then, of course, one of the subjects we'll be dealing with today is the massive cultural division that is taking place right now between those who are totally taken up 
by what's called critical race theory and those who do not believe that this is a correct thesis. But this is perhaps the most divisive because it's certainly going through the culture. And it's interesting to note that even the president, Donald Trump, has given laws or has told federal agencies and the military to stop teaching critical race theory since it is undermining the confidence that young people have in the solidity of the American system. And so this is going through the culture like we probably didn't know was happening, but now discovering that it's going everywhere. And we perhaps should talk about that a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. But it's not only in the culture, it's in the church because it comes into the church as a theory uh, that will determine how we relate to our fellow Christian brothers and sisters who are African-American. And so this is a very divisive kind of an issue that we really need to talk about and think about and seek some kind of resolution. I may have missed other divisive things, guys. Do you, can you think of anything else that we need to talk about? Well, I mean, the divisions are also over how we respond to uh, ecological issues, whether we're in the midst of, a, of, an, of, a, of an imminent uh, global catastrophe or, or not. Um, obviously, there are also divisions over the, the nature of COVID and the seriousness of COVID. Um, yeah, I mean, the divisions run deep and they run wide. And uh, it's, hard, it's hard to imagine a time in American history since the Civil War that Americans have been so deeply and widely divided. Yeah, we will be, the, the, for the, the lectures and the speakers, it's going to be The Great Awakening with Dr. Stephen Shavira, Cultural Marxism, Dr. Peter Jones. Stephen, you mentioned uh, the Green Deal or uh, global warm, climate change, global warming. So Ecology and the Green New Deal by Dr. Cal Beisner. Gender and Anthropology with Mary Weller, Race with Mark Robinson, Law and Policy with Dr. Jeffrey Ventrella, Spirituality with John Harris, and the issue of how to evangelize in this intense time of division with Dr. Thaddeus Williams. So let's uh, let's 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 back up now. Let's define some of these terms. We threw out Dr. Jones. You threw out critical race theory. Um, Stephen, your talk is on the Great Awakening. What does it mean to be woke? What is woke? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the, the best, probably the, the most succinct definition of to be woke is to be aware or awake to all the systemic injustices uh, that oppress certain people in society because uh, so the uh, so the case goes because our institutions and our social practices were invented by uh, white heterosexual men for the benefit uh, of white heterosexual men and only for white heterosexual men and so to be woke is to understand that 
and then to start recognizing all the instances of sexism, homophobia, uh, racism, and other sorts of isms and phobias in our public institutions, in our language, in our practices, and also secondly, to essentially uh, be an activist to overthrow all of that. And so in, in a sense, wokeness is a revolutionary agenda to try to eradicate traces of uh, white male heterosexual domination uh, in society. Well, two things, could you define what systemic means and then can you be white and woke or are you not if are the three of us not allowed to be woke these are these are fantastic questions uh, i mean first yes you can be white and woke now uh, systemic i'll get back to that other one uh, in a second but systemic is is actually that's sort of the devil in the detail that that uh woke theorists often find difficult to define um uh, I suppose by systemic racism, uh, what uh, often uh, race theorists, and Peter will talk more about this, I, I think, uh, but what they basically mean is uh, inequalities of outcome. So if in society you see that, say, people of color or you know, African-Americans, Hispanics are doing uh, more poorly economically, uh, in terms of health, in terms of educational attainments, in ter terms of career aspirations, then that is evidence of systemic racism. Now, but I still quite, haven't quite answered your question. What do they mean by systemic? They, they basically mean, and, it's, and it is kind of vague, that the rules of our public institutions, whether they're our law courts, uh, whether it's, uh, it's um, the way we elect politicians, and also the rules of other institutions like uh, educational institutions, the curricula that we study, and also our economic system, uh, but also just the way we think about uh, how a, a society ought to be run, our prevailing conceptions of justice, uh, say that, that might be considered individualistic and based on individual hard work and striving. I've got the one. Idea, I've got the, one. Idea, the color of a Band-Aid. The, the what, sorry? The color of a Band-Aid. The color of a Band-Aid. Did you want to elaborate on that? You know, a Band-Aid in American language is what you put on a cut. And you buy those in the store, and the color of that Band-Aid is the color of a white man. Mm -hmm. I just started seeing the, they're, they're now coming in black. Oh, have you seen that? Yeah, I, I just saw that the other day. I was like, oh, they've got, uh, it's uh, ethnical bandages. That's right. Well, yeah. that's another sign of systemic, I suppose you could say. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah and, and the idea of yeah, systemic is that, yeah, all of these, yeah, all of these institutions are essentially uh, programmed in a way really solely to benefit uh, white people but in particular sort of white it's pretty vague because you know you, you can ask to sort of be pointed to certain instances of systemic racism and you might find references to uh you know police brutality you might find references to inordinate uh numbers of african americans being incarcerated uh, you might find references to white skin colored band-aids um 
but whether those are things that sort of are enough to say that the whole system of policing is racist or you know our our, our whole system of 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 economics our whole economic system is racist that's that's quite another question uh, and so the term systemic is actually pretty vague uh, and this is something this is something pointed out by many theorists for, for example let me ask you i mean the, the obvious question is well what do we mean by the system i mean to say that the economic system was designed uh, or, or the educational system or the justice system were or, or the political system were designed by white people for white people well that sort of assumes that uh, only that, that these systems have not evolved and changed over the last sort of couple of hundred years. So take the you know, our laws. Uh, you know, it's 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 very simplistic to say that the laws uh, are simply for white males. When you know, throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, you had um, reforms in laws designed specifically to speak to the needs of. African Americans to speak to the needs of, of, of women and, and that kind of thing. And so the, the idea that the, that the system is sexist or the system is racist kind of assumes that the system is ossified and hasn't really changed in 200 years. And, and that's just not true. So it's a very simplistic understanding of the term system. And when you use that simplistic understanding of the term system, then the idea of systemic racism sounds kind of plausible but when you really start thinking about what the systems that we live under are like and how they've evolved over the years then the claim that the system is vitiated by racism and needs to be overthrown uh, loses a lot of its plausibility is there any aspect or uh redemptive or any way to make to redeem some of these um ideologies is there any aspect of this that falls under common grace we might be jumping ahead okay. with that okay. question, I think. Okay. We'd better look, first of all, at the problems and the problematic issues that are being raised before we jump into how we can arrive at a redemptive view of things. Okay, so the, let, me then, let me backtrack then, and then and to this is open game for everyone. Black Lives Matter, pro-life or cradle to grave pro-life, social justice. These are all aspects of being woke. Is that right, Stephen, Dr. Jones? Uh, Dr. Jones, did you want to try this one? Well, if it's a continuation of the question about woke, it seems to me, as I've been reading, that it is specifically whether we are aware of what you've been saying, that there is such a such a thing as a systemic uh, anti-black opinion of every white person. And that uh, we cannot get out of that. We're condemned to be systemically racist just because of the color of our skin, which as you say, seems extremely simplistic as if skin color has so much to say, especially since there are so many different shades of skin color. What a crazy criterion for establishing such a massive accusation of uh, systemic racism. Because 
you know, Kamala Harris talks about being a black woman and there's nothing black in her face at all. She's perfectly white. And I just wonder what this reference to black actually means. Mm. That's, that's a minor problem, I suppose, but it is part of this wokeness that we are supposed to understand that the black race has been extremely badly treated and it's the cause of white racism. When I was at the General Assembly for the, the, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, I think it was about 2016. I think you were there that year, Dr. Jones. That was the year when they did the whole report about racial reconciliation. And I went to a seminar and in the seminar, the speaker said that white people have no idea what it's like to be treated under under race under the, the oppression of racism. And I raised my hand because I'm Jewish, <laughs> and I know what it's like <laughs> as a Jew. Uh, I I remember in junior high being picked on because I was Jewish. I I was the funny looking kid with the kippah and the pyets, you know. Um, I stuck out like a sore thumb, and uh, and she says no. That's not racism. And I thought that's such a bizarre thing to say. That 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 just because I'm white, my understanding of racism is as not is not even comparative to the black the black person's experience. And I've often heard it, black people say white people will never know. And I've heard, I've heard this also from from um, Asian white people will never know what it's like to tell their children when a police officer pulls you over how you're supposed to act. White people will never know what it's like to tell their children to when you go to a grocery store, people are going to look at you funny if you're wearing a hoodie or if you have a backpack on. And I thought, that's totally not true. Because I was told by my parents how to respond to a police officer when you're pulled over. That was even in driver's education. I was told when I go to a grocery store, you don't wear a hood over your head because you can look like you're a gangbanger. I was told don't go into the store with your backpack on because they're going to think you're stealing. Some of this is just co this common sense. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, this is what some, um, uh, some people are calling uh, sort of ethnic or racial Gnosticism. Uh, the idea that, you know, a, a person from one race can't possibly understand what it's like to be a person from another race. And look, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic with that idea, but that's a far cry from saying that someone who's not an African-American can't possibly understand what it's like to experience racism. They're two very different claims. So I would respond and say, well, and, you know, a, a, say a, a white Jewish person won't know what it's like to be an African-American person experiencing racism, but an African-American non-Jewish person won't know what it's like to be a white Jewish person experiencing some form of sort of racial prejudice. Now, I grew up in a suburb of Sydney that's very, uh, very multicultural. And where I grew up, it was a pretty, uh, where I had to, where I sort of went to school, caught the train, it was a pretty rough area. And I can tell you right now that uh, on a daily basis, when I'd go to and from school, I felt very intimidated uh, by uh, people from uh, other, other races. Uh, it was, there were lots of gangs in the area. And on several occasions, I was assaulted. I was called a white so-and-so. Now, would I call that racism? Well, yes, I would. 
uh, I experienced as a white young man racism uh, in my own sort of uh, micro uh, microclimate, if you if you like. So if someone said to me, "You don't know what it's like to experience racism or to be discriminated against or to be hated because of your race," I would actually say that's that's not true. I know exactly what that is like. Now, do I know what it's like? to experience that as a black person in the way that a, a black person experiences it? No, but that's a far cry from saying that I've not experienced some form of genuine prejudice and even threat to my safety based on my race. Now, the, the, the way that, uh, that uh, sort, of, uh, sort of critical race theorists, like someone like um, Robin D'Angelo in her book, White Fragility, the way they get a, the way they basically say that white people can't understand racism or, or, or cannot possibly experience racism is simply by redefining the term racism. So up until now, we've tended to define racism as an attitude or set of behaviors uh, against someone else that, that, that either views them in a degraded way or treats them in a negative uh, discriminatory way based on their race, based on a contempt for their racial category. That's how we've tended to understand racism. Robin D'Angelo says, no, 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 that's not ra racism, that's prejudice. Mm. Uh, she says racism is really something that characterizes a system. And the system is racist if under that system, certain people from certain racists, uh, from certain races do better or worse than others. So a system is racist if in that society where that system exists, and again, the word system is used very simplistically and very vaguely as well here. If you have, say, African-Americans who statistically are more likely to be poorer or less well-educated, then that is because the system is racist. Um, now, the big question is, in, in some ways, why should we accept that definition of racist? Like, why should we just change the definition of racist? Because what that kind of neatly does is that it kind of, in her own words, sort of, it does kind of make it impossible for white people to be racist. But why should we accept that definition of racism? She never, ever tells us why we should accept her definition. In fact, in the book, she says, I'm not even going to try and prove it. I'm just going to assume that this definition of racism is the right one, and let's go from there. But she does admit that people of color, African-Americans and, and um, you know, Hispanics, and, that they can be prejudiced which is what we used to call racist. So she kind of, all she really does is just change the lingo in order to place basically white people in a very invidious position uh, to justify her social analysis that basically says the whole of society is skewed in the favor of white people. Mm. Uh, but there's just no reason to accept the definition whatsoever. And she, she explicitly says she's not going to try to justify it at all. And that's why, that's why, Josh, you can, you can go into a shop and be, you could have gone into a shop and be mocked for your race, be mocked uh, for, your religious, uh, for your religious clothing, and, and yet not uh, be able to be the subject of racism. Uh, 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 yeah. Okay. If the system is white racism, how do you explain how Asians do much better than white people in America. Uh, they are much more well-educated and they have higher incomes than white people. So if the, system, very well. if the system was purely 
a structure of a synthesis of what, no, of a, what's the word, white system, systemic racism, um, then that should have an effect on other races as well. But apparently it doesn't. Hmm. Well, we also know that uh, Indians do quite well economically. Right. You know, yeah. so Indians, Asians, people that sort of, sort of classically thinking are not what we would call, you know, quote, white, uh, unquote, that they do actually quite well as well. And so the problem is far more complex than these critical race theorists would suggest. And, and you can, and you won't be surprised that in Robin D'Angelo's book, she doesn't really address that in any depth whatsoever. In fact, one of the things that I was really surprised as I was reading uh, Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, is that there's actually a name that one would have thought she would have mentioned in this book, talking about racist America, that is actually not mentioned once. Mm. And it is Bar Barack Obama. This is a book on how racist America is. And you would think that at some point she would go into depth at how such a racist society would elect, why, it, or why and how it would elect a black president, not once, but twice, who very often had very high approval ratings. Uh, you would think that there'd be a whole chapter on that because you would think that that would falsify the idea that America <laughs> is deeply systemically racist. Right. Uh, in actual fact, his name is never mentioned in the book. And there are, I think, about two very passing references to uh, the president of America being black, but no really in-depth attempt to come to grips with the fact that Americans who apparently are systemically vitiated with racism elected Barack Obama not once but twice. Mm. So this is clearly a system that is being constructed. Uh, in your reading of that book, did she use the term critical race theory at all? I can't remember if she used the word critical race theory, but the, the book is most definitely critical race theory, Peter. And that's something I, I believe you've written about and done some research in. Peter, do you want to introduce that a little bit? What is critical race theory? Well, it's thinking that claims to be critical or intellectual. And there's a whole book uh, on it that I have read. It's tough going, this book, um, but it's called Cynical Theories and Critical is crossed out, but it's an examination of critical race theory as a, as a hermeneutic that allows people to establish really white supremacy. So it's if you like the tool whereby white supremacy is established by this logical, well, it's not very logical, but by this um, intellectual approach to theorizing about race. And this book by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose tries to show that critical race theory came about uh, through uh, what I call neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism. Mm. They were the first ones to develop this, as a matter of fact. And that's why we can hook cultural, race, cultural Marxism into critical race theory, it seems to me, because 
it was invented by these cultural Marxists. And it is a system that at the same time actually criticizes the old Marxism, which was a thoroughly secular humanism by the use, I, this gets awfully complicated, by the use of um, postmodern hermeneutics. Postmodern hermeneutics, I'll take it slowly. Postmodern hermeneutics actually states that there is no such thing as truth right. of an objective nature. Mm -hmm. So there are no major descriptions of the world that can stand up and claim to be true because all truth is, as they say, socially generated. Mm -hmm. That is created by people who use language and who use it to establish their own power. So postmodernism is a theory of language as a source of power, but it's not a source of objective truth. And that has been the way in which critical race theory has imposed itself on the Western world because it then says, if you argue against what we are saying in our critical race theory, you're using your own language, which is not true. So you have no access to truth, only your own power that you try to impose on me as a black thinking person. Hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, the point I was wanting to make though is that postmodernism was a fundamental critique of secular humanism. You know, it wasn't just a critique of Christian thinking or various philosophies of a religious nature. It was a critique of secular humanism thinking as well. Mm -hmm. That's why they say that Marxism was pulled down, but it's the neo-Marxists that reestablish uh, the kind of thinking parallel to the old Marxism. But I think it's important to see that this kind of thinking, which denies absolute truth, tries to use truth as a power, power tool, but denies absolute truth. That's what I would say it is a oneist system rejecting any kind of notion of God as the source of truth mm. and thus of, of the, the truth of twoism. And it opens the door to what I've been talking about, which is the post-secular era. The post-secular era, and I hadn't seen this when I was first talking about the post-secular. Post-secular era is the era where the old secular humanists, the atheists, are rejected and the new secular humanists actually allow 
for various kinds of religion to survive. And they try to put the world together in a post-secular way by using various forms of the old spirituality that the, the secular humanists had rejected as superstition. Mm -hmm. And so now we have a culture that builds on the intelligence, as I like to say, of the old secular humanists and puts together a world that uh, allows into it these various religious, religious uh, systems like uh, Hermeticism and Gnosticism and Buddhism and Hinduism and so on. The one religion they do not allow is Tuist Christianity. Mm -hmm. Peter, if I, so if I could summarize Marx, what you've just said, Marxism flattens and subverts economically. Right. Cultural Marxism flattens and subverts authority. I suppose you could say that. And then the post-secular nature of, of cultural Marxism, critical race theory, is this monistic aspect that flattens spirituality and unifies. But it allows it in as one valid, one possible way of describing the world. Mm. So it brings in pagan spirituality again onto the scene. I think we're going to have to wait to see that flower because we've always thought of Marxism as totally non-spiritual. Uh, but I, I'm beginning to wonder if neo-Marxism is not now moving into a much more spiritual way of thinking. Mm -hmm. I agree with all of that, Peter. And uh, I think that it's probably worth pointing out that there is this debate over whether cultural Marxism is, like, really exists or if it's just some sort of right-wing conspiracy. Mm. Uh, you, you've probably all heard this accusation that cultural Marxism doesn't really exist. It's just something created by right-wingers and has a touch of anti-Semitism about it. And it's just created by right-wingers purely to discredit people on the left who might advocate various forms of social justice. The, the term cultural Marxism was not a term that was invented by people on the right. The, the term cultural Marxism uh, was invented or at least it seems first to have been used in the earlier 1970s, and it was used also throughout the 1980s, uh, by what we would call uh, uh, critical Marxist theorists of culture. It's actually a term invented by what we, what we would call Marxists themselves. And people who are more conservative uh, noticed the term, uh, picked up on it, and then started using it. Uh, but, but you know, you, it's un, it, you cannot deny that there has been a school of academic thought that has called itself cultural Marxism. And essentially what it was, was what Peter said that it was. It, it was taking the Marxist category of society as simply uh, a, a struggle between the oppressed and the oppressor and uh, taking that beyond the economic realm and applying it to other uh, forms of oppression, whether that's gender, whether it's sexuality, whether it's race. You know, no one really denies that that happened in academia. Uh, mm -hmm. That happened and, and it's well documented. And the question really is, is that way of thinking still influential today? 
and is it is it still okay to call it cultural Marxism? And I would say to the first question, is that way of thinking still prevalent today? I would say most definitely yes. And should we still call it cultural Marxism? I would say as long as we do so carefully, uh, yes, we can still use that term. Uh, anyone who says that cultural Marxism is not a thing or that it's merely a conspiracy really uh, is wrong and, and really doesn't understand uh, the that, that, that this particular mindset was and is very common in universities, particularly from the 1960s onwards. I think I, had... I would like to add to that something objective, and you no doubt know it anyway, but the cultural Marxism began with the establishment of the Frankfurt School, which was inspired by uh, the... Uh, what was his name? The uh, uh, Gramsci, the Italian Marxist Gramsci. Where is the Frankfurt School, Peter? The Frankfurt School was about half a dozen German Marxists who escaped. I think most of them were Jews as well, Josh, just for your encouragement. Uh, who <laughs> es escaped Nazi Germany in the 30s and came to America and established, or were established as a teaching element at Columbia University. And they were invited by John Dewey. Mm -hmm. This is all very interesting because John Dewey was raised as a reformed Christian believer. Mm -hmm. And he rejected that and he rejected the notion of God as the source of existence and developed a theory of teaching that wanted to make the case that human beings invent their own reality. Mm. And this was in the 30s. That's he, actually went, he actually went to Russia and he admired the Russian system and then later on, he founded the training school in, at Columbia University for the training of teachers based on this denial of God the Creator and a sort of Marxism that he had actually observed uh, both in his reading, but also going over and, and being with uh, Lenin uh, in Moscow. So here is a deep connection between what becomes uh, neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism developed by these Jewish Marxist scholars following Gramsci. Now what does Gramsci have to say? Gramsci said we should ditch the notion of uh, a revolution uh, as a sort of a physical rejection of the power of the state and undermine the state via a, an examination of all the philosophical notions of the West and undermine them. And that's precisely what the Frankfurt School did, hooking up with, of course, later with the 60s revolution. 
So this fits um, Marcuse and uh, uh, Red Rudy Duchka, who was a 60s revolutionary, agreed with him that the revolutionaries of the 60s needed to go underground and make the long march through the institutions. And this is precisely what Marcuse, one of the Frankfurt School scholars, agreed with. And so he came and taught a total undermining of Western sexuality. Uh, Eros and Civilization was one of his books. And I, I heard him speaking at Princeton when I was there. But he was a massively uh, popular scholar. But of course, he fitted in with the 60s revolution in its rejection of classic sexuality. And so you have a new form of revolution which does not seek to overturn the actual physical structures, but seeks to overturn the fundamental defining notions of the culture, uh, like sexuality and like, you know, the notions of fair play and uh, the constitution, Gender, things rights, like that. Nice so it's, it's definitely all tied together, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. We do have cultural Marxism uh, flowing out of Marxism, but it's, it's new, as Stephen said, because it is not simply tied to material things or economics, but to all the elements of Western civilization being overturned. If just, just in terms of continuity with Marxism, I, we, we also want to be careful about e exaggerating the extent to which it's, that, that cultural Marxism or sort of critical theory have sort of broken away from classical Marxism. Because even in, again, even in sort of Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility and Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, you know, they both still essentially argue that the reason racism exists is because historically it served capitalistic purposes. <laughs> so, you know, why did we invent race and therefore uh, racism? Well, essentially to justify slavery. And why do we want slavery? The capitalists wanted slavery. So, so we, we, we also want to remember that even this sort of critical theory, which does apply Marx's analysis more broadly to the economy, still maintains that at the end of the day, the reason we have these modes of uh, oppression ultimately is because in some way they serve the capitalist order. So it's still quite, it's still quite Marxist in, in, its, in its analysis. And, and Black Lives Matter is a great example. Black Lives Matter talks almost as much about capitalism uh, as it does about racism. And Black, and Black Lives Matter, so to get to an earlier question of yours, uh, Joshua, is, is definitely uh, a, it's sort of the, the example, uh, the exemplar of, of wokeness, because Black Lives Matter basically looks around society and says the whole thing needs to be pulled down, the system needs to be pulled down. And, and when you went to their website a few months ago, you would see that it's not just racism that needs to be pulled down. Um, you would see that uh, it was uh, heteronormativity, so that heterosexuality as the norm, that needs to be pulled down. Nuclear uh, family. 
the nuclear family. Well, they've taken that off now, yeah. Joshua. You, you, you'd be aware of that, yeah. But they've taken that down because obviously, probably because that proved far too com uh, uh, controversial, probably among African-Americans who, in terms of their social ideals, tend to be actually much more conservative than, than whites. But yeah, they said, you know, what used to be on the Black Lives Matter website is that we want to disrupt the traditional nuclear family and basically implement newer forms of family um, uh, certainly, uh, it was against gender binary ideas that you've just got male and female. It was very pro-transgender. And so Black Lives Matter was the, sort of the epitome of wokeness. It basically looked around society and saw all of our systems, the ways that we think, which is what Peter was getting at earlier, the ways that we think, the ways that we speak, the, way, the, the ways that we live, as essentially the creation of white heterosexual males and essentially the whole thing needs to be torn down and rebuilt anew. That's right. Black Lives Matter, as you remember, also boasts of being Marxist trained. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, Black Lives Matter spokespeople in the past, and it's all on YouTube, have spoken about how racism is caused by capitalism, how we need to overthrow capitalism. And yeah, right. uh, one of the, the co-founders recently said, yeah, we're trained Marxists. But also spirituality, because they have sought a um, relationship with black paganism in Africa mm. and development of a sort of a, a worship of witchcraft. So that this is a much more subtle form than most people understand. When I see all the football teams, said soccer teams in England, taking the knee on every game because of Black Lives Matter, I realize how powerful this movement is, but most people don't know some of the things that you mentioned, Stephen, or this relationship to black uh, ancient pagan spirituality. I was just going to say, I think one of the, the problems uh, that, we're going to, that, that we need to really address as Christians, uh, and really just as anyone who wants to critique wokeness, is that increasingly the whole vocabulary and, 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 and sort of way of thinking about genuine problems like racism, uh, that it, the way of thinking about it and the way of speaking about it is more and more being exhausted by wokeness. That is, we're getting to the point where you can't, where everything we hear about in terms of the problems of racism is from a, a woke uh, critical theory lens. And so the problem with that is, is that people who instinctively feel that there's some that there's something wrong with wokeness that there's something wrong with critical theory they can't quite put their fingers on it it's gotten to the point where people like that are basically in a position where they either reject wokeness and therefore can no almost no longer condemn racism because the only way you can condemn it now is via wokeness or reluctantly start experimenting with woke and critical theory ways of thinking about the world, and that leads them down a really dark, uh, conflict-ridden um, uh, track. And so I think what we need to do is, is regain I, I, a biblical understanding of justice and injustice. This conflict is irredeemable. You cannot fix it. That's one of the worst things. Uh, one thing I found, too, in the light of this uh, Black Lives Matter and wokeness and its impact on our culture is the division it is creating 
in the church and in the culture, and that this was attempted 70 years ago also by Marxists. And the goal was to revive amongst black people an anger with the treatment and create a movement to critique America as being hopelessly racist. And this was tried 70 years ago. And now we have it in our time, the exact same methodology trying to undermine the confidence that citizens have in the system that we live in uh, because it is so hopelessly racist. Now, 70 years ago, it was a lot easier to do it. But now, of course, as you suggest, even with all the changes we've gone through, including the civil rights actions and so on, we're seeing that this is a phony attempt to undermine the confidence that Americans have in their system. But this has been going on for a number of years. And what we're seeing in the streets today is merely a very small expression of what many Americans have been taught to think. And uh, one of the ways that this has happened is the training for generations of Americans about their own culture using the book by Howard Zinn, A Popular History of America, yeah. which was written, he, he was a convinced Marxist. <laughs> yes, it sells 100,000 copies a year. <laughs> no, it's also the fact that he's, his book is the only one in many schools that's used as a history book. And uh, he has created a few generations of Americans that are dissatisfied with the American system and believe it is evil and we have to change it. So what we see in the streets uh, is only a minor expression of a progressive movement that I believe is massive. I agree. I completely agree. And uh, Howard Zinn's book, uh, The People's History of America, it sells 100,000 copies a year. Uh, it's, it's a, it, you know, uh, I think it's hard to overestimate the impact that, that has had on the minds of millions of children and young adults who have basically been taught that everything in American history is just one oppressive event or oppressive person after another. Um, can, can I just say one last thing for myself? And that is, uh, it, it could be worth exploring in a sense, uh, you know, to, to sort of go back to something you said earlier, Peter, about how a lot of these uh, sort of the irredeemable aspect of, of a lot, lot of woke theory, uh, it seems to me the key place where wokeness goes wrong, uh, there, are, there are a few, um, but one of them is that in, in most woke literature, you will find pretty much no references to forgiveness. So you're not going to find references to forgiveness in white fragility, for example. Uh, you'll find sort of references to reconciliation and things like that, but it's almost as though woke theory sort of aspires to a kind of reconciliation or restitution without forgiveness. And the problem with that is, I think that 
there are these times in life when we as individuals or, 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 as, or as groups of people cry out to God because of an injustice that's occurred. Uh, obviously, in the example of, of Jews, it would be the Holocaust. In the, for the example of African-Americans, it would be slavery. We cry out to God and ask, where is justice? Happens in people's individual lives. Let's say a family member is unjustly killed uh, or maimed by someone else. But I think what we also learn is that it's precisely those moments when we cry out for justice that in actual fact it's unattainable in this life. In all those moments when we are so aggrieved and injured that we cry out for justice, these generally are precisely the times where we cannot have it, not in this life. Mm. And the, the problem with wokeness ideology is that when you get rid of forgiveness, what you have is this strong call for justice, this strong uh, call for restitution, uh, even calls for repentance with the expectation that at some point there will be some kind of reconciliation. But the problem is that you can't, there's never ever going to be uh, proper justice for the sin of slavery. It's never going to happen. And the problem is that in any ideology that looks for social wholeness or social reconciliation without prioritizing forgiveness, all you will ever wind up with is conflict. All you will ever wind up with is a feeling among one party that I'm really, really sorry for what I have done and what has happened in the past. I'm really, really sorry. And a feeling among another party that I have been really injured by this. My, 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 uh, my ancestors have been really, really injured by this. But that can never, ever be bridged without forgiveness. And mm -hmm. so what you're left with is a group of people who feel that they're really, really sorry, but don't feel like that's being adequately recognized. And another group of people who feel really aggrieved and injured and don't ever feel whole. And so all you're going to wind up with in the long term is conflict. And that's precisely what has broken out on the streets of America. And when you have a conception of justice, when you have a conception of reconciliation without, without prioritizing forgiveness, as you have in the gospel, that is, uh, sort of notions of justice and, and reconciliation in a post-Christian world, in, in fact, all you will ever wind up with is conflict. And that's precisely what the moment we're living through right now. Mm, that's right. And this is a dangerous time for that reason. I appreciate that emphasis because it makes so much sense. But I read yesterday someone saying we're very close to civil war. That's a scary thought. I definitely think that America is very is on the brink of prolonged armed conflict. Maybe the best analogy I could think of would be like the troubles between uh, Ireland and and uh, the rest of, of, of Britain in the 70s and 80s. That would be the best analogy I could think of. Uh, to be frank, I think if Trump wins in November, I think America will immediately descend into armed conflict. I, I just I think that's inevitable. I think if Trump loses, it will probably still happen, but it'll take a bit longer. Maybe not. We have to, uh, to wrap up. Our, our time is up. But I, I do want to go back a little bit, tease out, Stephen, your, your last piece there about there being no forgiveness in this woke ideology. Is there anything redeemable out of 
woke culture? Is there any aspect that plays into common grace? Yeah. Because I see a number of Christians whom would be very much on a orthodox and confessional level really embrace this really feel the pro- these, that they see these problems in society and they uh, they have championed woke ideology championed the black lives matter championed the social justice and they'll say this is christian liberty so how does how does common grace fit into all this? Is there an aspect of common grace on th- this system? Yeah, well, I think in terms of any redeeming elements of wokest ideology, I mean, wokest ideology certainly uh, values some form of justice. It, it certainly aspires to some kind of equality. I would actually say that the redeeming aspects of, of woke ideology are probably a legacy of historical Christianity. And, and so, and I think that's probably because his, you know, wokest ideology itself is part of the evolving history of Marxism. And Marxism is in some ways best understood as a, as, as a bizarre expression of Christianity with its own creation, fall, redemption narrative. And so mm. to the extent that wokeism says that people ought to be treated fairly, that people, that all people have dignity, and that a society that does not treat all people with equal dignity uh, uh, is a society that needs reform. I would say to that extent, certainly, uh, wokest ideology uh, uh, has, has um, true, true elements to it. But the, the problem is always, and, and, and you know, the problem is always that that the lies are actually very subtle. And so in the context of wokest ideology, where it tends to go wrong is that it will talk about sin, but it won't talk about sin as a universal affliction that, 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 that vitiates all human beings. Mm-hmm. They'll talk about it as mainly something that vitiates you know, white heterosexual males. And the problem with that is once you get rid of the Christian understanding of sin as something that vitiates everyone, and therefore everyone needs redemption and no one can point to another person and say sinner without pointing to themselves back and thus be humbled. Uh, when you get rid of that and you have a, a sort of wokest emphasis on sort of tribal sins that my tribe is sort of the, the sinned against and your tribe is the sinner, then again, what you wind up with is conflict. And so to Christians, what I would say is certainly the concerned about the existence of racism in the same way that you should be concerned about the existence of, 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 of poverty, but also about the existence of murder in all its forms, not just murdering autonomous adults, but murdering you know, children in the womb. Uh, but at the same time, you've got to think about it properly. You've got to really try to have a, a constructive and realistic understanding about what racism is. Uh, what the causes of present-day inequalities are. And the problem with wokeism is that for almost every explanation it offers, it either outright just denies the facts. So, for example, it might talk about uh, a gross gross number of police killings of African-Americans and almost a sort of 
I mean, the Black Lives Matter website talks about sort of almost genocide against African-Americans by police and by white people, which is just a lie. It is just mm -hmm. a lie. It is not true. Or what it often does is it relies on vague or very simplistic uh, notions like systemic racism, which we've spoken about earlier. So, so to Christians who, who sort of are confronted with claims of wokeism, uh, you want to learn to remain concerned about racism and various forms of inequality, but not buy into the wokest solution or the wokest or the critical theory analysis of it, because the critical theory analysis of it is wrong, it's simplistic, and it's going to be immiserating for society as a whole. And we're seeing that right now. Mm -hmm. I would like to say to Josh, forgiveness is not common grace, it's special grace. And I fear that the woke solution is not a solution even of common grace because it promotes victimization. Mm. That's one of the worst kind of situations in which a human being can place him or herself. So I do believe we need grace. We need common grace, but I think that that is all involved in the structure of uh, minority homes and the rejection of victimization and so on. That's common grace, but we do need special grace, which is the gospel of forgiveness. This concludes our episode of the Truth Exchange podcast, a unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. Be sure to drop us a line, let us know how you think we're doing, or let us know about anything that you would like to see us address in upcoming episodes. Remember, this podcast is only made possible from friends like you.